Good morning. It's been a dark week. We've had this truck rampage through Nice, France, 84 dead, scores more injured. Had a coup in Turkey where we've seen hundreds killed. And the week before that wasn't any better. We had kind of the conversation in America of institutionalized racism boiled to the surface. And then we had police officers killed. And it's not been an easy time. And we start to think about this and, and think of this as a theme of epic fail. We're like, this is, this is epic failure at a massive scale, right? You have the loss of life. When human life is not regarded as important or sacred enough to preserve. And we think about this and we start to wonder, like, why? How does this happen? Who would be callous enough just to drive a truck through so many people? How could someone think to take a gun and just start shooting? And I think the answer is, is hard, but it, the, the truth is it's darkness. There is a darkness in this world. And this darkness feeds upon human life. It wants to fight the good. And it's always lurking, even in our own hearts. I mean, we just saw this in our own backyard in Mississauga a couple weeks ago with the explosion. So houses destroyed. It was kind of surreal. I was driving down the highway that night, and, it, and I saw it. Exp, and then two lanes closed at Renforth, and I knew the explosion at Renforth, and the first thing I thought it was like, I meant explosion. I realized afterwards, oh, that means express, but it was just palpable, like this, is, this really just happened in our hood. As I started to read the news, it got more surreal, so you started hearing the stories that are kind of circulating about what happened there. One of the reports I read, it said, in the seconds after a deafening house explosion rocked a Mississauga neighborhood, the sky was filled with pink insulation, two-by-fours, and written confessions to God. They found these little notes that were written about what was coming and how they were feeling and the hurt that was within their hearts. One of the persons who lived there had actually been convicted of murder of one of his close friends over some money. Convicted for a life sentence, but got out in parole 10 years later, and I'm sure was living with a lot of guilt over that. And one of the notes that kind of fluttered through the sky and landed on the ground, and someone picked it up, it said, Dear God, as of next week, everything will fall apart for us. I started to puzzle about this. Like, how, how do people who claim this connection with God and are speaking to God, how have they become so overcome by darkness that it ends in death? How could the, the darkness come, some, come close to home, right? For those of us who are part of a church family. When you read the scriptures, you start to recognize that this is not strange to Jesus, that in fact, the darkness came very close to home for him. It came into his tight inner circle, his closest friends were attacked, and one of them was overcome by the darkness. 
In fact, the name Judas now is a synonym for the word betray. But his story begins back in the good old days. We hear his name in Matthew 10.1. And he called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. It's a powerful statement of what Jesus is doing. He's sending his 12 out, and they are able to heal diseases, and they are able to cast out evil spirits. And the names of these 12 apostles were first Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. I wonder what those days were like for Jesus and his team. The days of power, and they're just starting to come into their own. People are starting to know who they are. Not only that, they're being sent out, and they're going from town to town, and they are seeing God move. The Holy Spirit is casting out demons into people. Sicknesses are, are flying away. And one of the people, it says, that are doing this is named Judas. I wonder what he felt like that moment, to see the power of God at work. A son of Israel is like, yes, look what God's doing. He's using me. Evil spirits are fleeing. It must have been good times. I'm sure Judas had a little bit of a thrill in his heart and a little excitement just like they all did. I remember one of the stories, they come back to Jesus like, we were, we're casting them out. Some of them were tougher than others, but we, we, we did it, Jesus. And then something happens at some point in the journey with Judas. It's not quite clear exactly when and where or how or what, but something happens in Judas's heart. Part of it might be a disappointment. We start to see this in disciples in general, that Jesus starts realizing that some of these people are in it for the power. They're in it for him to become king and overthrow and they can be set up as generals and leaders. Some of them are in it for the bread, the food, the free gifts. And so he starts saying some hard words. One of the things he says to them is that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Unless you eat my body you will die. It says in John 6, 60, on hearing it, many disciples said, this is a hard teaching. You think? <laughs> Who can accept it? And aware that disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said, does that offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and full of life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. Interesting. He went on to say, that's why I told you no one can come to me unless the Father enables them. So there's a little bit of disappointment creeping in. So people are like, Jesus, you're teaching some weird stuff eating your body. He's deliberately pushing people away so they don't kind of just look at him as this uh, powerful military figure, it says. And Jesus starts to predict something's going to happen. In fact, John 6, 66. If you're a Bible verse, 666, you know it's a dark verse, right? 
After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. A lot of people turned. The first betrayal. And Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter said, Lord, where will we go? You have the word of eternal life. We believed. We've come to know you are the Holy One of God of Israel. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Somewhere along the lines, Jesus starts throwing the warnings out. One of you is going to betray me. You wonder what was happening in Judas' heart when he hears these things. Then we start to hear what's going on behind the scenes. You see, Jesus had a a number of uh, very wealthy women who were actually supporting him. Joanna, Susanna, there's there's a number of Mary. It says they're actually helping supply his ministry. But he has someone who's his treasurer. And the treasurer doesn't like what Jesus is doing with the money. Mary, therefore, this is verse uh, chapter 12, 3, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of this perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, going to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? I demand you be accountable for this, Jesus. I am a social justice-minded person, and you are wasting money. Notice his greed here is hidden in the language of righteousness. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. It's almost like this. Let her keep it for the day that you betray me. Something's going on in Judas's heart. We don't know exactly what's happening, but he's starting to not feel Jesus. He's starting to think, maybe I hitched my hook to the wrong wagon. Maybe he's not going to thunder into leadership of all of Jerusalem like I thought he was. Because he's hearing rumblings and the chief priests, he's seen Jesus upsetting all the powers. I mean, these are the powers that are supposed to follow Jesus, and now they're after Jesus. And now Judas is getting cold feet. Like, I, I wanted this power. When Jesus had finished saying these things in Matthew 26, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days, the Passover is coming. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Imagine sitting there, you're Judas, and you're hearing, and I'm going to get killed soon. What? Jesus? I'm with you because you're going to be king, and I'm going to be like one of the regents. Jesus, you can't die. That means you're a loser. You're an epic fail. And so Judas starts thinking about, what am I going to do? I'm not going to go down with this ship. The chief priests and the elders of the people in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, 
there'll be an uproar amongst the people. We've got to do this in secret. And then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and he said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver up front, cash in hand. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now Jesus' mind is watching, when can I get him? You think about what's going on with, with Judas. He's probably thinking, like, if you can't beat him, join him. It'd be hard to hear saying your guy's going to go down and be crucified. Why would I stick around with that? And so it's already started in his heart. And so Jesus makes another prediction of what's about to happen to him. And it says in John 13, very uh, a lengthy passage. We'll try to go through it quickly for you. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart of this world and to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's heart to betray him, notice where this is coming from. The darkness is coming from the devil, the enemy, the spiritual forces of darkness. Jesus, knowing the Father had given him all things in his hands, that he had come from God, was going back to him. I want you to look at the, 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 the passage that follows. It basically is, Jesus starts washing their feet, cleaning their feet, scrubbing their feet, the dirt and all the grime. And then he says to them, hey, you're not greater than me. If you want to follow me, you're going to have to wash feet. You wonder what was going on in Judas's mind at that time. You expect me to wash feet? He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me, it says in the scripture. And Jesus says, this is about to happen. And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples look at one another, uncertain of who he spoke, what, who's, what? And one of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at Jesus' side. We believe this is John. So Simon motioned to him, asked him to ask Jesus who he's speaking about. So the disciple, John, leaned over and said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is whom I give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. And he dipped it and he gave it to Simon Iscariot, the son of, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, what's interesting about this is he doesn't come up to the 12 and say, Judas is betraying me. It's a kind of this little secret conversation behind the scenes with Peter and, and John. We see this again in Matthew when it talks about who's going to betray. Um, they're all asking each other, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? And then the Son of Man says, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who would betray him, said, is it I, Rabbi? And he said, you said it. Again, a little personal interaction where Jesus looks him in the eye and says, you know, you know it. Now, the other disciples don't quite know what's going on. They don't know about what's happening with Judas. 
But what's happened is he has had the darkness enter him. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do? Go do it quickly. But no one at the table knew why he had said this. They thought because he had the money that he was telling them to go feed the poor or something. What are you going to do? Let's go do it. Interesting way to deal with the darkness, isn't it? And while I was with them, I gave them in your name. Everyone you gave to me, I guarded them. Not one of them has been lost. Praise Jesus. Except the son of destruction. So the scriptures could be fulfilled. This is a prediction of the son of perdition. And then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was a number of the 12. This is Luke 22. There's something going on here that's deeper than just Judas, right? There's a darkness that's always pressing upon him, and he lets it in. And he seeks an opportunity to betray him. And when he finally does this betrayal, it says that they're looking for Judas, and for Jesus, Judas knows the place. He knows the secret hiding spot. And so he leads them. It says he procures armies. So this is, this is Judas leading an army himself and coming to the place. And he comes to him and he, he gives him a kiss. The man I will kiss is the man sees him. And what does Jesus say to Judas when he comes? One of the things we have recorded is, friend, do what you came to do. That kind of stops me in my own tracks. What Jesus' own attitude towards him still is. Isn't that interesting? This man who's filled with the darkness, who's coming to kill Jesus, friend, do what you're going to do. Not, Judas, please don't do this. You're going to destroy yourself. There's this interesting knowledge of the darkness that Jesus has. but he still loves Judas. And then the darkness ultimately overcomes Judas because he starts to realize what he's done. And he comes to the, the, the chief officials and priests and says in Matthew 27, he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they're like, what's that have to do with us? He throws down the silver and he goes and he hangs himself. The darkness grew so strong that he could not even imagine the light. And that is his greatest failure. We see in Acts, it talks about his death, and it talks about him. Um, it says he falls headlong and he bursts open in the middle and his bowels gush out of him. And some people will point to this to being a discrepancy in the scripture, saying, look at, one says he hangs himself, one says he falls off a cliff, and he, so look at, the, the scriptures aren't inerrant, and there's a lot of questions over that. Um, the, obviously, the early Christians saw both of these, and they read it, and they tried to figure out what they believed was happening. What usually is said is that um, Matthew emphasizes the hanging of himself, because to the Jewish people, suicide was a affront to God. But the Greeks didn't think that way about suicide. So what Luke focuses on is the medical situation that happens and basically the idea that after he hangs himself, he falls to the ground and his body bursts open. It's kind of like the, the Greek people are like, well, that's a horrible scene, right? And recognize the, 
the nature of the death being a horrible thing. There's a lot going on in this story of Judas. And you hear a lot in the kind of the backgrounds, you hear it on TV. I don't know if you've, you've heard this before. You've heard of the Gospel of Judas, anyone? It's an actual gospel that you can read. It's ancient, not that ancient, not as ancient as the Bible. But some will say, look, the Gospel of Judas shows that Judas was a good guy. Jesus is behind the scenes saying, hey, Judas, can you betray me? I need you to betray me. Yes, Lord, I will obey you. And try to turn it into this kind of faithful act of Jesus. However, when you start to read the scriptures, you say, well, was Judas misunderstood? Was he like, poor Judas? In fact, when you read the scriptures, you start to recognize the words that are used to talk about him. He is betrayer. He is a traitor. Jesus says that it'd be better that he was never born. You hear language about him going to the place where he belongs. There's a lot of language to realize, no, Judas wasn't misunderstood. Judas started off in the camp of Jesus, in the, in, the, in the presence of Jesus, and somehow he allowed the darkness to slowly but surely creep in. You start to wonder, like, Judas, why? Why, Judas, why? Why would you do this? And there's all sorts of different theories. Some people say it's the love of money. He was greedy. He just wanted 30 pieces of silver. Not much, enough to buy some property in the capital city. Other people think it was jealousy that he, him and the other disciples didn't get along. He was the only disciple who wasn't from Galilee. He was from Judea. So maybe there was friction there, and he just like, I'm never going to be anything here. Maybe there was fear of the state. He was realizing, we're going to go off the rails here, and the government's starting to get mad. I'm going to be arrested myself. This is self-preservation. Sorry, Jesus, but I'm not going to die too. Other people say perhaps he was trying to force Jesus' hand. He's trying to trick Jesus, like, I'm going to make you declare yourself king. I'm going to make you take over this government. One thing I've learned in my life is you can't make God do anything. Some people say it's this bitter revenge. Like, I'm going to get Jesus back. You disappointed me. I put all my hope in you. I trusted you. I gave my life to you. And look what you're doing. Some, somewhere deep down, I think a lot of it is this disappointment with Jesus. Like, The darkness in Judas is a complicated, interconnected tapestry of tragedy. We don't know quite why the motives are there. I think part of that is helpful for us because we start to recognize that our own hearts are these complicated tapestries. And we've got to be careful. All these little threads can be dangerous. And so the first thing I think we need to learn from the story of Judas is the realness of darkness. Darkness is real. Sometimes we pretend it's not, and we like to think, you know, always think the best of people, and, and, I, and I get that. We want to be loving and caring, but there is darkness. We see this in, in Luke twenty two forty seven, And while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew them near to Jesus to kiss him, and Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who came out against him, have you come out against me like a, a robber with swords and clubs when I was with you day after day in the temple? You didn't lay hands on me, but this is your hour 
and the power of darkness. There is a power called darkness, and people are drawn to it. Sometimes your own hearts have been pulled by it. It's seeking to, to pull us in. It's a, it's a power that can't be ignored. If you pretend it doesn't exist, then we are in trouble. And I think that's part of what we're seeing with what happened in Mississauga. I don't know the whole story, but you start to read some of the notes that were left behind. And you, you hear a woman who is crying out to God and, and yet can't see any solutions. She says, I, I'm sorry the house is a mess. I stopped vacuuming when the power went off in the upstairs bathrooms. I stopped ironing a few months ago when I could not stand up for long periods of time. I stopped dusting when I had to deal with my vertigo. The last year it began and now I have it often. I just stopped caring as much because of my pain. I trust God to look after me and my husband to take me home. I sleep away my days because I'm in pain. Vertigo is the worst. you read that, it's like, I don't know about you, but my heart just like cracks. It's like, here's someone who the, the darkness is surrounding and, and she knows there's God and but it sucked her so deeply in. Dear God, you know that my health and my husband's health are in poor condition. We ask that you help us. We have trusted you with all our lives and possessions because everything belongs to you, including us. We put all our faith and trust in you. Only you can save us from man and his laws. Why are we still here, God? This is the pain. This is the reality of the darkness coming on people, trapping and trying to suck them in, driving people to do things that they wouldn't have dreamed of, destroying homes. I just think of like, they're so sucked into the darkness that it ends up destroying other people's homes too. Do not play with the darkness. It's not a toy. It seeks to destroy. I think about the Lord of the Flies and you see a lot of times we're like, oh, humans are good. And when you read that story, you sort of realize like, ah, if they're left alone to our own devices. Like I see it with my kids, just leave them alone and all of a sudden from downstairs, ah, screaming and Right, that our hearts are very selfish as humans. Sometimes we get so selfish that we, we care more about our own opinions of ourselves than God. And I think that sometimes happens when you get into those, those places where what Judas does, where he can't even think about the possibility of Jesus still loving him. So he's gone so dark, he doesn't realize that Jesus still loves him, that Jesus still thinks he's a friend. So what is the darkness that we are dealing with? What is the seed of damnation, as some people would call it, that, that seed that's in our hearts? Like, and we've got to think about this. What, what is the thing that we're not paying attention to, the darknesses that might be pulling us? It could be, it could be pornography. I've seen it pull people slowly. First this one thing, and then another, and then all of a sudden, this chatting on the internet, and all of a sudden, it's adultery. Homes destroyed. Is it addictions where you start to go down these paths and all of a sudden you, you have 
no hope. You end up in despair. I, I can't defeat this. This is, this is ca- caught me. Is it greed where, where it just keeps growing and growing and then it becomes an unstoppable force and you're never satisfied? Maybe it's anger. It could be start with like a self-righteous anger. And slowly but surely it turns into something that you're hurting other people, even those that you love. Maybe it's a disappointment with God. The seed that's in us and don't play with the darkness. We need to let that darkness be revealed. There is real darkness, and the gospel will reveal it if we give it to God, if we don't allow it to absorb us. And so this is the second thing I think we need to learn is that we need to deal with the darkness. Darkness in our own hearts. Also, how do we deal with darkness that we see in other people? I think sometimes we as Christians can be unwise in how we deal with the darkness. I've seen it where we think, oh, you know, that person... You see a little couple things, well, that's okay, whatever, I'll just ignore it. And then all of a sudden, they've crashed and buried. And sometimes it sucks us into it. Be as wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove. Look how Jesus deals with it. He doesn't blame himself for what happens to Judas. He allows Judas his own free will, and yet he calls him friend. He still loves on him. He's being gentle at the same time. It's this, this, this play of how do you deal with this? Realizing that there are people who are, are going to be overcome by the darkness, and that sucks. But it's real. You can't fix everyone. Be careful with the darkness when you see it in others. Like, speak the truth to it, but also recognize that you can't get pulled into it. You can't fix people. The gospel fixes people. Jesus fixes people. And that's the problem with the darkness. It makes you think that there is no light. There's no hope. But the gospel, the third thing I want to point out is it repeals the darkness. It pushes the darkness back. When we look at the story, it's something like, did, did Jesus fail? He picked a disciple who went astray. Sometimes we think when we see failures in our life, we're like, oh, I'm out. Sometimes there's things beyond what we can recognize and things beyond what we understand. Jesus didn't fail here. Jesus was working alongside and working with him and, and, and giving him time, but at the ultimate side, he recognized what was going to happen, and yet the main failure is Judas's failure to recognize the power of forgiveness. Judas had a chance. But you know what Judas does? Before... Jesus resurrects from the dead. He shuts his own life down. Do you notice that? He can't hope. Jesus told him, I'm going to come back in in three days. The Holy Spirit of God is going to raise me up. And Judas just couldn't believe it. And so he leaves before he receives the forgiveness. Think of the difference between him and Peter. Peter is the most gregarious of disciples, the leader. And he betrays Jesus too. He abandons him. He's off. He could have also succumbed to the darkness. He could have let the darkness overcome him. But instead, he comes to Jesus, and he looks Jesus in the eyes, and he's like, man, like, I, I am horrible. What have I done to you? And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Restores him to leadership. This is the beauty of the gospel. The gospel pushes back all this darkness. It doesn't matter how you betrayed Christ. The gospel is telling us that it can be overcome. There is hope. 
We need to live in this forgiveness. The Holy Spirit of God is ready to clean up the darkness. I started to think about the Holy Spirit and what he does and how he fights this and lets us know the reality of our forgiveness and how he works in our hearts and overcomes this and empowers us. It kind of reminds me of like, right now we have this Pokemon Go craze that's happening. Right? Everyone's looking around for Pokemon everywhere. There's even some in our driveway, I think, or something. But the Holy Spirit of God is going and it's searching your heart and looking for these things, these darknesses, and sucking them out, vacuuming them out, cleaning it up. Allow the Spirit of God to enter into you so that you can have the darkness surely, slowly cleared away. That's our hope, isn't it? That we can be forgiven, that the darkness does not win, that the light is real, that we have hope, that we don't have to give in. The story of Judas does not need to be our story. The house that guilt has built will be destroyed. So don't hold on to any shame. Be released in Jesus' name. May the darkness that was in Judas have no device in your life. May you live in the life-giving light of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for the bread which you broke and you, you said to us, it's your body given to us for the forgiveness of our sins. That you poured the cup and you let us know that our life is in your life now. That you give us the gift of life. That you give us a freedom from the darkness. And so Lord God, as we receive today your body and your blood, may we also revel in and allow ourselves to be overcome, overwhelmed by the reality of your forgiveness, of your life-giving light. In Jesus' name, amen.